Good morning. I rejoice that I get a chance to preach today. And our sermon title is Learning Contentment in Christ Jesus. And our text is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. I'll start off with a little introduction. Then I'll read the text, pray, and then get an, give another partial introduction as context. Let's begin this morning with an introductory quote from the Life Application Study Bible. Quote, the word happiness evokes visions of unwrapping gifts on Christmas morning, strolling hand in hand with the one you love, being surprised on your birthday, responding with unbridled laughter to a comedian, or vacationing in an exotic locale. Everyone wants to be happy. We make chasing this elusive ideal a lifelong pursuit, spending money, collecting things, and searching for new experiences. But if happiness depends on our circumstances, what happens when the toys rust, love, loved ones die, health deteriorates, money is stolen, and the party's over? Often happy, happiness flees and despair sets in. In contrast to happiness stands joy. Running deeper and stronger, joy is the quiet, confident assurance of God's love and work in our lives, that he will be there no matter what. Happiness depends on happenings, but joy depends on Christ. Unquote. Joy in Jesus, no matter what the circumstances, especially challenging circumstances, is practically the same as contentment in Christ. The title for today's sermon summarizes the main point and its application for our scripture text today from Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 to 13, learning contentment in Christ. And I want, to, I want us to learn this together as saints in Jesus Christ, to be more satisfied in our Savior, no matter what situations we find ourselves in. The three keys for contentment are these today straight out of our text. One, trusting God's providential provision. Two, live independent of circumstances. And three, be strong in our Savior's strength. Let's now read Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13 from the NASB. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I am. I know how to get along with humble means and to also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's briefly pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for the preaching of, of your word. Um, help us to worship right now. Uh, by listening to the preaching of your word, help us to enjoy it, be challenged by it, convicted. Teach us contentment in Christ from today's preaching. And also pray that you'll help me, a weak vessel, help me to be strong uh, in Jesus as I preach. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to preach um, effectively and clearly. And I pray also that I, I enjoy this. In Jesus' name, amen. Context is king in Bible interpretation. Therefore, I must put today's biblical text in the context of Philippians as a part of my exposition today. 
It is also helpful to briefly consider the historical context for Philippians. The book of Philippians can be called a letter or an epistle. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the Philippians, and Paul wrote this book while he was in prison in Rome. His imprisonment was from AD 60 to 62. Paul was under house arrest. This house arrest, this imprisonment, is to, is to be distinguished from his later time in prison when Paul was in a dungeon about to be executed under Nero's persecution. Nevertheless, Paul was still in prison under house arrest. He was in jail and guarded by a soldier. Uh, actually, he was chained to the various Roman soldiers who watched him. Paul had joy in jail. Paul had peace in prison. Paul was content in chains. We perceive God's providence as Paul was allowed to preach to people while in prison. Paul was content because he was in Christ. Paul was especially joyful to be able to preach the gospel. The gospel is the good news of salvation, the forgiveness of sins for people who repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone. My one-sentence summary for the book of Philippians is this. Rejoicing together in the midst of suffering for the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul founded the church of Philippi, Macedonia during his second missionary journey, according to Acts chapter 16. This church at Philippi was actually the first church in Europe. This area of Macedonia is in the area today called Greece. Here's what happened in history. The Philippians had a good track record of financially supporting Paul and his ministry. When they found out that he was a prisoner in Rome, here's what they did. The Philippians sent up a gift to Paul that was delivered by Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus probably informed Paul about the status of the Philippian church. Accordingly, Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter to his beloved and longed-for brethren, the Philippians. This letter was sent back with Epaphroditus to thank the Philippians for their gift, to encourage these saints in their suffering for Christ Jesus, to address some concerns like false teachers and disunity in their church. Please look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, and I'll read that again for us. Philippians 4:10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Paul rejoiced greatly because this gift to him was a worshipful expression of the love and fellowship the Philippians had for Paul. Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, and we're going to get perspective on Paul's rejoicing greatly. And I will read Philippians 1, 3 through 5 for us. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is praying for them with a joyful and thankful attitude. In view of their participation in the gospel. This word for, for uh, participation can also be translated as partnership or fellowship. The Philippians were Paul's partners participating in the most important mission ever known to mankind. This mission is what? The Great Commission. Commanded by Jesus to all believers or followers of him as Christians. We are commanded by our Lord to go into all the world to preach the gospel. Now look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. I'll read that for us. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, 
that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul was encouraging the Philippians. Paul was chained, but the gospel could not be chained. Paul was shackled to a Roman guard, but the gospel could not be shackled. Many people, including those of Caesar's household, were unshackled from sin's condemnation. The gospel, the power of God into salvation, was setting people free. Paul used prison as his pulpit to set the spiritual prisoners free. This is what Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 18. Please look at that. Chapter 1, 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. He rejoices when Christ is preached. Let's continue to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Please look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's encouraging the Philippians. Think about this. As Christians, we should live lives that are consistent with the gospel that saved us. Uh, notice this emphasis on teamwork and unity as we strive together at Calvary Baptist Church for the faith of the gospel. We are to stand firm, holding our gospel ground as what? As soldiers of the cross, not budging one inch from our gospel post. We will face opposition for proclaiming the gospel. We are to expect this persecution, rejoice in this persecution, and be content while in the midst of these challenges in our gospel ministry. Please look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. I'll read that for us. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The word granted literally means graced. Of course, salvation is graced to us as a free gift of God. But this verse also shows that we are graced with the gift of suffering for Jesus' sake. We can therefore have satisfaction in our suffering for our Savior's sake. Because of Calvary, we can be content to suffer for Christ, to suffer for the gospel of Christ, to suffer for our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, consider the historical context of the Philippian church. This church was in Philippi, Roman colony. The Romans viewed the Philippian Christians as unpatriotic because they would not say that Caesar was Lord. Of course they wouldn't. True Christians are loyal to, the, to King Jesus as the Lord of their lives. True Christians bow their knees to King Jesus as the Lord of their lives. True Christians confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Paul rejoiced in the Lord greatly with respect to the Philippians' financial stewardship. Think about that. Their gift to Paul was a missionary gift. Their gift expressed their friendship and their fellowship with Paul. In this gift funded God, uh, Paul's gospel preaching and writing of some of the prison epistles. Their financial stewardship was evidence of their submission to Jesus' lordship. 
Please look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Again, Paul is calling for teamwork, for unity, for unity through humility. Notice the beginning of verse 2. It says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. complete. The Philippians would make Paul's joy complete. How? By their unity, by their love, and by their humility. By their considering others, like Paul, more important than themselves. Paul rejoiced greatly in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, for their gift. Because this gift was an expression of their obedience to biblical truth. Their gift to him was the practical application of their looking out for the interests of others. In this case, Paul himself. Next, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I'll read that for us. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul rejoiced at the receiving of the Philippians' gift because this was an example of them working out their own salvation. Paul rejoiced to see the people he led to salvation in Christ give practical evidence that they were growing in likeness to Christ. It was the grace of God. It was the grace of God that gave the Philippians the want to and the will to with respect to sending Paul a gift. All this was for God's good pleasure. Let's look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 again. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Notice that Paul writes that now at last you have revived your concern for me. You should be able to tell from the context of this passage and from Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, that I just read, obviously, Paul is not complaining. Complaining is not rejoicing. Complaining is not being thankful. Complaining, murmuring, grumbling, disputing, arguing, etc. is the opposite of contentment. Furthermore, the Greek word for revived is a botanical term, which means to flourish, to blossom. Paul's heart is content. His heart is full of thankfulness. Paul is saying that their thoughtful concern for him flourished like a flower sprouting forth. They're giving to Paul beautifully blossomed in God's perfect timing. Consider, consider the last part of 4 verse 10. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity the bible doesn't specifically state why the philippians had not sent paul a gift for about 10 years but the bible here 
does tell us that the Philippians were concerned for Paul even when they were not able to show that concern with the monetary gift. Another Bible translation says, though you surely did care. However, in sharp contrast, many professing Christians today have plenty of opportunity to give generously to fund the gospel ministry. They just don't care. They do do not care. Why? Some people don't care because they are not content with what they have. If you are not content with what you have, it is very difficult to give generously. Are you, beloved brethren, content with what you have? Listen to this quote by John MacArthur concerning contentment. Contentment is a highly prized but elusive virtue, though it comes only from being rightly related to God and trusting his sovereign, loving, purposeful providence. People nevertheless seek it where it cannot be found. In money, possessions, power, prestige, relationships, jobs, or freedom from difficulties. But by that definition, contentment is untainable. For it is impossible in this fallen world to be completely free from problems. In sharp contrast to the world's understanding of contentment is this simple definition of spiritual contentment penned by the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. This quote contains a quote, well, you could say this quote that contains a quote, introduces our first key idea about contentment. Here's a summary point for Philippians 4.10. Paul was a contented Christian because he exercised faith in God's providence to provide for his financial needs. By God's grace, we can be content in everything as we exercise faith in God's providence to provide our financial needs. Here's the first key for contentment, put more briefly for you note takers. Trust in God's providential provision. Trust in God's providential provision. Since God's providence and our contentment are so connected, I will briefly discuss what God's providence means. What is God's providence? Professor, theologian, and pastor Millard Erickson writes this. The providence of God means the continuing action of God preserving his creation and guiding it towards his intended purposes. He also writes that this governing activity of God, quote, is the actual execution within time of God's, of his plans devised in eternity. Furthermore, he writes, God is not only in control, he is directing matters according to the goodness and graciousness of his character. Erickson also provides the application for Christians right in a systematic theology textbook like that. He says, it means that we are able to live in the assurance that God is present and active in our lives. We are in his care and can therefore face the future confidently, knowing that things are not happening merely by chance. We can pray, knowing God hears and acts upon our prayers. We can face danger, knowing that he is not unaware and uninvolved, unquote. 
In the same way, theologian J.I. Packer writes this, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Glory to God. We can learn to be content in our sovereign God. God causes, God orchestrates, God engineers. Warren Wiersbe writes this. God in his providence had caused the church at Philippi to become concerned about Paul's needs, and it, the gift, came at the very time Paul needed their love the most, unquote. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it was the grace of God that caused the materially poor Philippians to be spiritually rich in their giving to fund Paul's gospel preaching. Please look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Here we learn that the second key to contentment is this, to live independent of circumstances. To live independent of circumstances. Why does Paul write this right here? Not that I speak from want. Paul writes this so that there would be no misunderstanding about what he just wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Sure, Paul had a material need in Roman prison. This is especially true considering the historical context of the reality of prison during this time. One leading evangelical commentator writes this, quote, In a culture where prisoners were not cared for by the state, but whose necessities for life, especially food, had to be supplied by friends or relatives. This is no small thing that they had done, unquote. Nevertheless, Paul wasn't primarily rejoicing because he, he would be able to eat again. He was rejoicing because their gift was tangible evidence that they were content as Christians. Their contentment in Christ freed them up to give sacrificially and even cheerfully to Paul. Notice the next word after the phrase, not that I speak from want. This is the word for. Do you see that? Not the window, but the word for. It says for means because. For because I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul is content in every circumstance. I got a question for you. Are you content in whatever circumstance you are in? Along this line, here are some related questions. Based on the immediate preceding context of Scripture. Please look at Philippians chapter 4 verse 4. Do you rejoice always as Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 instructs you? Paul writes this two times in one verse to drive the point home to our hearts. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Another important question. Dear brethren, are you anxious for nothing as Philippians 4 6 instructs you to be? Do you pray about everything with a thankful attitude as the same verse instructs you? It's actually a command. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Look at the blessing of obeying God's command from verse 6. Verse 7 says this, In the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your heart from worrying and discontentment. Another question, are you meditating, contemplating, pondering, thinking about, dwelling on whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise? As Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 tells you, by contemplating on these things, you will be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We will be able to do that. Meditating on these things makes us more content in Christ. Did you hear that? It's huge. Meditating on these things makes us more content in Christ. It's true. The word contentment in this context means to be satisfied with the Savior, Jesus Christ. I appreciate how Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss describes contentment here. Content means, quote, to be independent of external circumstances. To be independent of external circumstances. This means to be independent means that our contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. In other words, our happiness is not dependent on our happenings. Paul was independent of circumstances because he was dependent on Christ, writes Wiest. Paul was independent of circumstances because he was dependent on Christ. Dear Calvary Baptist Church family, are you consent? Are you completely dependent on Christ? Are you being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, by reading and obeying the Word of God? Are you praying and meditating on Scripture so that the peace of God can guard your hearts, can guard your hearts from contentment's enemy? Contentment's enemy. The sin of covetousness. Covetousness. How serious is the sin of covetousness? The 10th commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, warns us, Thou shalt not covet. Covetousness is greed. It is the ungodly desire to have more, especially more of forbidden things. Colossians chapter 3, 5, and Ephesians 5, 5, shocks us with this fact. Covetousness is idolatry. In the parable of the rich fool, Jesus gives a serious warning in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. The Bible encourages us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Are you content with the basic necessities of life? John Piper insightfully writes, quote, Covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. He also explains why covetousness is idolatry. It's idolatry because the contentment that the heart should be getting from God, it starts getting from something else. Coveting is desiring anything other than God 
in a way that betrays a loss of contentment and satisfaction in him. What covetousness do you need to repent from? What covetousness do you need to repent from? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 sternly warns us against covetousness with respect to money without actually using the term covet. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and the snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The next two verses in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12, teach us to flee from covetousness and to follow godliness. We are to follow Paul's example and fight the good fight of faith. We are to follow Paul's example and do that. Piper writes, the fight of faith is the fight to keep your heart contented in Christ. To really believe and keep on believing that he will meet every need. The best way to fight the good fight of faith against covetousness and to fight for contentment in Jesus Christ is with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Dear brethren, let's pray Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. And do this. Think, meditate on, and pray Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. By God's grace, let's follow in Paul's footsteps and learn how to be content in whatever circumstances God providentially has put us in. The last part of Philippians 4.11 says, Content. The last part of Philippians 4.11, content in whatever circumstances. In the next verse, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, specifies the two categories covered by this whatever. So I'm going to read Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 again for us. Philippians 4.12, I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. Here we continue to learn the secret of contentment is to be independent of circumstances by being dependent on Christ. This verse is an amplification of verse 11. The first category of whatever circumstances is this, according to our text. I know how to, I know how to get along with humble means. Paul learned how to live humbly. He learned how to live with the humble means of life's basic necessities of food, shelter, and clothing. Again, 1 Timothy 6, 8 helps us to see God's viewpoint. In having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Philippians 4, 12 further describes living, living humbly as going hungry and suffering need. Paul had the peace of God in the midst of poverty. Paul had the peace of God in the midst of poverty because he was relentlessly focused on the God of peace. Paul was content. He was happy even when he was hungry because he was feeding on the spiritual bread of life, Jesus Christ. Paul was content. He was satisfied to suffer need because he was focused on the suffering servant, Jesus. 
Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Paul was content to be thirsty because his spiritual thirst was being quenched with the living water of Jesus. Paul was content being poorly clothed because he was richly, richly clothed, spiritually clothed with the righteous robe of King Jesus. Paul's content to be beaten because Jesus was beaten for him. Paul's content being homeless because his spiritual home is in heaven, according to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. 2 Corinthians 11, 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, and I'll read the verse 29. And this is an amazing description of how Paul suffered need as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the context is this. Paul has contrasted himself, he's contrasted himself as a genuine minister of the gospel in clear contrast to the false teachers opposing him. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Please turn back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. Paul wrote this. I know how. I know how. Do you know how? Paul knew how to be content in very challenging and crushing circumstances. Please notice this. Paul did not. He did not always know how. He had to learn how, which is one of the reasons I'm preaching this message today for you and for me. We desperately need it. He had to learn how. The Greek word for learned in verse 12 is actually different from the Greek word for learned in verse 11. And this different word is appropriately translated as learn the secret. Have you learned the secret of being content in challenging circumstances? Have you learned the secret of being satisfied in very stressful situations? Have you learned the secret of being content no matter what, in whatever circumstances? Paul was, quote, he was independent of circumstances because he was dependent on Christ, to quote Wiest again. By God's grace, we can learn the secret of being contented Christians. Live independent of circumstances by being dependent on Christ. But even more simply, the second key for learning contentment in Christ Jesus is this. 
live independent of circumstances. A part of learning the secret of contentment is this, is to see your earthly pressures from a heavenly perspective. To see your earthly pressures from a heavenly perspective. Listen closely to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our sufferings, our afflictions may feel very heavy now. You may even feel like you are being crushed by your challenging circumstances. However, the biblical fact revealed here is that from an eternal perspective, your afflictions are actually very light. Your afflictions may feel like they will never end. But in actuality, the Bible teaches that your afflictions are only temporary. Those truths help you to hang in there. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. A biblical perspective of knowing truth provides us with peace and contentment. A biblical perspective of knowing truth empowers our perseverance during times of intense pressure, painful pressure. Paul wholeheartedly embraced a providential perspective. That's what we need to do. This providential perspective is seeing God's sovereignty, God's control, working out in his life. And we need to do that. And he even saw that in prison. Paul's providential perspective provided him with what? Perseverance to press on towards contentment in Christ. Knowing is crucial for contentment. Knowing is crucial for contentment. This is called real knowledge in Philippians chapter 1 verse 9. This is the real knowledge we ought to be praying for according to Philippians 1 9. Knowing what God says teaches us to trust what God does. Again, remember how Romans 8.28 starts, and we know, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Understand this. It's always important to point out. This good is defined in the context of the next verse in verse Romans 8.29 as being this, conformed to Christ's likeness here on earth now and then perfectly in heaven. Let's keep on learning. Keep on learning the secret of contentment by being attentive students of Scripture. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. This precious passage links our knowing with our rejoicing. And this next passage links our knowing with our joy. Consider it all, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, 
so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And as many of you know, this is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. We learn more about the secret of contentment from these two passages. Knowing, believing, and applying what the Bible says is the key to contentment. Paul knew how to get along with humble means, and he knew how to suffer need. Now let's explore something that could be surprising. Now let's explore how Paul knew how to live in prosperity, in abundance. Some of us are thinking, I'd like to try that. This should raise a question in your mind. What would someone, why would someone have to learn the secret of how to live comfortably? Before I answer this question from Scripture, it is important to see Paul's prosperity, his abundance, clearly. Based on what is recorded in the Bible, Paul's abundance may have been a relative thing for him. For Paul, abounding could be having anything above his basic needs. However, the application for us in the United States implies a, a certain measure of wealth beyond having our basic needs met. You don't have to turn here, but listen. The entire chapter of Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a good commentary on contentment in poverty and contentment in prosperity. For our purposes now, I just want to say that Deuteronomy chapter 8, the entire chapter, strongly warns the Israelites who are about to go into the promised land of Canaan. God warns them ahead of time. Do not substitute trusting your wealth for trusting and obeying him. They were not to let the blessings of the good land God was giving them to cause them to forget their good God. My brethren, we must learn to maintain our, con our contentment in God, the giver of all good things. We need to beware, take heed, watch out, lest we pridefully give ourselves the credit for all the material blessings God has provided for us. So far, we have learned about two keys to contentment in Christ. One, trust in God's providential provision. And two, live independent of circumstances. Now we'll consider the third key for contentment. Be strong in our Savior's strength. Be strong in our Savior's strength. Please look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I'm going to read this again for us. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do. The phrase I can do means this. To have power. To be strong. To have resources. To be able. To have strength. Here's a question. How can you have strength to do all things? The answer is right here. Through him who strengthens you. The him refers to Christ. As we follow Paul's example, we can have the power of God's grace to do all things. This could be called empowering grace, and I like to call this strengthening grace. Let's do something here. Let's see what this famous Bible verse is not saying. Let's look and see what this famous Bible verse is not saying. This verse does not mean this just have faith and you can achieve anything by faith you can do extraordinary things by faith you can claim God's promises to be healthy wealthy and successful this is a popular misinterpretation of this famous Bible verse God does not repeat God does not promise these things anywhere in the Bible and especially not in this verse Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 with this in mind 
Listen to a quote from New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. In the NIV, it says everything. Carson writes, the everything cannot be completely unqualified. Jump over the moon. Integrate complex mathematical equations in my head. Turn sand into gold. So, it is commonly expounded as a text that promises Christ's strength to believers in all that they have to do or in all that God sets before them to do. That, of course, is a biblical thought, but as far as this verse is concerned, it pays insufficient attention to the context. He goes on to say that all things or everything refers to living in poverty or prosperity from verses 11, uh, 10 through 12. Listen carefully. Carson rightly rejects too broad of an interpretation that we sometimes see. I'll give examples. For example, the NIV study Bible is a good study Bible that is slightly off with, with too broad of interpretation of this verse. Everything is said to mean everything pleasing to God. This idea is true, but this idea is not the main point of Philippians 4.13. Listen very carefully. As a model how to study your Bible, hermeneutics. It is a mistake to only consider the immediate context of verses 10 through 12 to the exclusion of the larger context of the book as a whole. The result is an interpretation that is actually too restrictive. This is the view that restricts all things in Philippians 4.13 to only mean the Christ-given ability to live contentedly with material poverty or material riches. So, how do we accurately handle, how do we interpret this verse correctly? The key again is the three most important words for Bible interpretation. Context is king. Context here means not just the immediate context of the verses before and after Philippians 4.13, but the book of Philippians as a whole, the wider context. Another good study Bible, the Life Application Study Bible, does a better job of interpreting Philippians 4.13. It says this, can we really do all things? The power we, re we receive in union with Christ is sufficient to do his will and to face challenges that arise from our, our commitment to doing it. He does not grant superhuman ability to accomplish anything we can imagine without regard to his interest. As we contend for the faith, we will face troubles, pressures, and trials, unquote. Especially this last part. This point hits the nail right on the head. By God's strengthening grace, we can be content in challenging circumstances that come from our commitment to contend for Christ. Let's follow Paul's example in his exhortation to the Philippians. To be content to share the gospel in challenging circumstances. We are to be content in Christ in our ministry of sharing the gospel of Christ. We have the privilege and responsibility to courageously, to boldly, Proclaim the gospel in today's ever-increasing hostile environment. Here's what we are learning from Paul's example to us. Paul had a providential perspective, which provided him with perseverance to preach the gospel under heavy pressure. He was content in being criticized for preaching Christ Jesus. Paul also had the power of God to preach the gospel of God while suffering according to the providential hand of God. Paul's joy in Jesus gave him power to preach Jesus. 
Paul's contentment in Christ gave him power to preach Christ. Paul's satisfaction in Jesus as Savior from sin gave him the power to share the Scripture about his Savior. Paul's commitment to Christ gave him power to preach about being converted to Christ. Paul writes this in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As previously mentioned, one of the meanings of the Greek word translated, I can do, is this, is to have strength. We can have strength to do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens us within this context. As we faithfully follow Paul's example, as he instructs us to, I've been emphasizing that because in Philippians 4, 9, he says, follow my example, and you'll be able to do what I'm doing as he's following Christ. We are promised, when we follow Paul's example, we are promised by God's word to have what? God's peace and God's power. Let's go a little deeper now in mine outs and gems from this famous verse. The Greek word for the word translated through literally means or could be translated as in, I-N. This phrase would then read this, I can do all things in him or in Christ who strengthens me. This is important because the phrase in Christ points to the amazing theological fact of our union with Jesus Christ. Union with Jesus Christ. Union, union. U-N-I-O-N. Union with Jesus Christ provides us with, provides us with what? His power to do all things. Union with Christ is the source of all our spiritual riches. Union with Christ is the foundation for our contentment. Here's how the famous Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff defines this union with Christ. That intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and their salvation. We can do all things through Christ because we are in Christ. This doctrine, this glorious doctrine is all over the place in the New Testament. The doctrine or teaching of union with Christ is used by Paul more than 200 times in the books of the Bible. He wrote, not only are Christians in Christ, Christ is in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is breathtaking to consider that union with Christ can be seen from this incredible view. Listen closely. This is one of the, my favorite parts of the sermon. From eternity past to eternity future. Beloved brethren, our union in Jesus Christ includes this. Our election before the foundation of the world. Our redemption accomplished at Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. Our effectual calling in God's perfect providential timing. Our regeneration or being born again. Our repentance from sin and our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Our justification, our adoption into our Father's forever family. Our present sanctification or spiritual growth. Our perseverance in the faith by God's preserving power and our future glorification in our heavenly home. As believers, our actual union with Christ, and I was saying that because we can view it as I just showed from eternity past to eternity future. But as believers, our actual union with Christ happened in time. When did that happen? When we believed in Jesus Christ alone as our Lord 
and Savior for the forgiveness, the forever forgiveness of all our sins. Please look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. And here's the context here, part of it. The context here in Philippians 3, 7 and 10 is on the heels of, or part of the context is Paul, he's given a mini testimony of how super religious he used to be as a Pharisee. For whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Oh, I really want to read more, but I have to stop for time purposes. Keep on reading that sometime today. I will give a very brief gospel presentation. Actually, that'll be the funnest part of the sermon. The very brief gospel presentation based on Paul's testimony of salvation here. So I'm going to give, give that in the context of the scripture I just read. Notice in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he uses union with Christ expressions twice in one verse. In Philippians 3, 9, twice. The first union with Christ phrase is in him, and the second is in Christ. Some of you here are not believers. Your sins have not been forgiven. You're on your way to death and hell. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You are currently not found in him. That is Christ. You are outside Christ. Your own righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. Trusting your own righteousness of trying to earn your way to heaven by being a good person is evil. It's wicked in God's sight. Because God is holy, his standard for heaven is perfect, 100% obedience. You are in big trouble. That is the bad news. In brief. But the good news is that God has lovingly provided a perfect righteousness for sinners like you. God the Father sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth to live a perfect life of 100% obedience. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us the incredible extent of Jesus' obedience. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says, He made him, that is God the Father, made God the Son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus knew no sin, means he never sinned. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the penalty of sin as a substitute for all the sinners who would ever believe in him as their Lord and Savior. When you believe, your unrighteousness is credited 
as punished in Christ Jesus on Calvary's cross. And Jesus' righteousness is credited to you when you repent and place your faith in him alone as the only Savior from your sin. Also, believing in Jesus means you commit your life to follow and obey him as the Lord of your life. Believing in Jesus as your Lord means you also believe that he is God. He is God the Son. That's what Lord means. He's God and he's in control. Dear unbelieving sinner, trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of all your sins. By God's grace, you must believe this, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day. By placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you will have union with Christ forever. Now let's shift gears back to believers here who are united to Christ by faith. The root of our sanctification, our spiritual growth in Christ-likeness is because of our union with Christ. We are connected to God's power to bear the fruit of contentment in all circumstances. Because our union with Christ as divine and we are the branches. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in John chapter 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This metaphor emphasizes the spiritual truth that strength of Jesus, literally, the strength of Jesus literally flows into our lives as believers. Think about this colossal contrast. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. But in Jesus, we can do all things. Speaking of all things, Paul was empowered to do all things through Christ because knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection was the one thing Paul was consumed with 24-7. May that be true of us. Paul could do all things because he was focused on one thing. Brethren, we have resurrection power enabling us to do all things, including rejoicing together in the midst of suffering for the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's power gives us strength to be content, to be exceedingly joyful, even while we are sometimes persecuted for our gospel boldness. We desperately need God's power to press on, to do all the things he wants us to do. Be encouraged with the biblical promise that Jesus gave to Paul's prayer for some pain relief. This is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says this to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul responds with an amazing example for us to learn to follow. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell with me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow! Jesus' strength is perfected in our weakness. 
brethren. We must live by faith. We must exercise faith. We must press toward the prize. We must press forward by the power of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. We must cultivate contentment. Cultivate it like a garden. Pull out those weeds of complaining and covetousness. We must cultivate it. We must cultivate contentment in Christ, no matter what the circumstances. Again, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote this, and he wrote it in the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Quote, there is strength in Christ, strength to support us under all our burdens and afflictions. And Christ expects that when we are under any burden, we should act our faith upon him to draw virtue and strength from him. We must faithfully go to Jesus Christ by praying, by praying the Bible for his strength and our weakness to experience joy and contentment in him. Today we have learned more about how to be content in Christ Jesus. We have learned three keys exposited out of Philippians 4, 10 to 13. Our first key for contentment is to trust in God's providential Provision, trust in God's providential provision. Our second key for contentment is to live independent of circumstances. Live independent of circumstances. Our third key for contentment is to be strong in our Savior's strength. Be strong in our Savior's strength. I will finish today with an admonishment for all of us. We can't just live disobedient lives and then blissfully quote and claim the promise of Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. John MacArthur writes this. It is important to note that only those who live lives of obedience to God's will can count on his power to sustain them. Those, who, those whose continued sin has led them into the pit of despair, cannot expect God to bring them contentment from their circumstances. In fact, he may even add to their difficulties to chasten them and bring them to repentance. God's power will bring contentment to those who have no strength of their own, but only if they have been living righteously. There is no quick fix, no shortcut to contentment. It comes only to those strengthened by divine power, and that divine power does not come from counselors, therapy, or self-help formulas, but only from consistent, godly living. Unquote. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text of scripture. It's very uh, challenging and also encouraging to us. Help us to apply what we learned this week. Help us to learn contentment in your son, Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit in letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Seal this message to our hearts and help us to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for our last song.